Well, as we come to God's Word this morning, as Steve mentioned, we return once again to the Gospel of John. So this morning, we're actually going to work our way through the rest of chapter 1. So we're going to be looking at John chapter 1, verses 38 through 51. Now, to help place this narrative in our minds this morning, I want to read this section of Scripture on the front end. I'm actually going to start back in verse 35. Uh, that's going to help us place the, the entire, this entire portion of the text correctly. And, and I'm going to start at verse 35, and I'm going to read through to the end of chapter 1. So here's John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. The next day, again, John was standing, that's John the Baptist, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Well, as we approach the text this morning, I want to pose the question at the outset that Jesus posed to the first two disciples in verse 38. As this unnamed disciple and Andrew, they leave John the Baptist to follow Jesus. Jesus turns to them and asks, what are you seeking? As they came to Jesus, he asked this important question and is the same question that I posed for us this morning. In this text, we are once again confronted with Jesus. And my question is, what are you seeking? What are you seeking from Jesus? And this is an important question to answer. We, we actually, when we worked through John 6 months ago, we saw one response to this. In that chapter chapter 6, the, the day after Jesus feeds the 5,000, the, the people, the crowd, they track Jesus down and they're seeking after him. And Jesus turns to the crowd and says in John 6, 25 and 26, it says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. The crowd on that day sought Jesus because he had filled their bellies with food and they wanted more. They didn't want Christ. They wanted what he could do for them. They weren't actually seeking him. And that is an important distinction uh, as the crowd in John 6 ultimately displayed their unbelief. When Jesus told them they had to consume him, they had to eat of his flesh and drink of his blood, and they didn't want anything to do with that. In response to that, they turned and walk away. So I asked the same question this morning. What are you seeking? Have you come this morning seeking him? 
I urge all of us this morning to come to Jesus, to come to the text this morning, seeking him, seeking to see him more clearly and to know him more fully. Now, I know it's been a few weeks since we were last in John, so I want to set the stage then for our text this morning. What we have in John chapter 1, verses 19 through chapter 2, verses 11, this is, this is actually a series of seven consecutive days. Seven consecutive days in the life of Christ. On, on the first day, on the first day, that's actually verses 19 through 28, and in that, a delegation is sent to John the Baptist from the Jewish religious leaders, and they go and they try to find out who this man is. And then on the second day, in verses 29 through 34, John the Baptist proclaims that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when we come to the text this morning, this text this morning actually encompasses three days, days three through five. On, on day three, two of the disciples of John the Baptist follow Jesus. On day four, Andrew goes and brings his brother Simon to Jesus. On day five, Philip goes, and we see Philip bringing Nathaniel to Jesus. And then at the beginning of chapter two, it says, on the third day or the third day from the last event, which would include a day five, and that takes us to the wedding in Cana. So a series of seven consecutive days. So we're in the middle of those seven days. We're in days three through five. And here we have the account, an account of Jesus calling his first disciples at the beginning as he's getting ready to start his public ministry. Now, in my mind, that raises an immediate question about the calling of Jesus' disciples. If you were like me at all growing up, I had in my mind that Jesus only called his disciples once. And when that happened, it's that picture of Jesus walking by on the shore and and he sees them fishing in their boats and he calls out to them, come and follow me. So they immediately leave everything behind and follow him. And as a kid, it always seemed like this magical moment in my mind where these fishermen who didn't know who Jesus was, they're so moved by him in that moment that they just abandon everything and follow this complete stranger that they know nothing about. But as you read the Gospels, there actually seems, we've got to look a little bit, it seems like there's three different accounts of Jesus calling his disciples. We have this first one here in this account. We have one account here this morning. Secondarily, in Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20, if you want to look at these later, Matthew chapter 4, 18 through 20, this seems to give us a, a different account of Jesus calling his disciples. I'm going to read one of those. One of those is Mark chapter 1, 16 through 20, and this probably sounds familiar to most of us. It says, passing along the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And we see that in the Matthew chapter 4 account, those are the same account. They give the exact same details. So it seems like a second one. And then thirdly, in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, we have this account of Jesus preaching from Peter's boat to a crowd. And then after that, he tells Peter to cast his nets one more time. Peter had been fishing all night, hadn't caught anything. He says, cast one more time. Peter's like, yeah, I've been fishing all night. What do you know? But okay, I guess I'll try. He throws the net in and Jesus brings so many fish that he almost breaks the net as they're trying to bring in all these fish. And then at the end of that account, once again, we see Jesus calling his disciples, come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. So then what do we make of these seemingly separate accounts? Well, if we look at them together, what we have actually in all those accounts, we have two separate times that Jesus actually calls these same disciples. The very first initial interaction of Jesus with these disciples is in our text this morning. Sometime after this, The disciples go back to fishing and Jesus later comes back to them and what we have as a summary in Mark and Matthew is given to us in detail in Luke's gospel. 
All three of those accounts in the Synoptic Gospels are the same account. So when Jesus calls them later, these men are not following somebody they have not known, but someone they have already interacted with. So just to be clear in our minds of where this is in the time of Christ, what we have here this morning is the very first encounter of these disciples with Jesus. Now there are a couple of additional questions I feel we need to answer about this narrative. The first is, who is the unnamed disciple in verse 35? Verse 35 says, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. Well, notice that the gospel writer says that there are two disciples with John the Baptist that left him and followed Jesus. And we get the name of one of those disciples in verse 40 as Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. But the author never states who the other disciple is. So who is this man? Well, the best answer to this question is that the unnamed disciple is the gospel writer himself, the Apostle John. Now, why would I think, or why would I say that the unnamed disciple is John? I think there are two reasons. One, John actually never mentions himself specifically anywhere in his gospel. He always remains unnamed and has other code names for himself. The disciple, for example, he calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. So he always remains unnamed throughout the gospels, whereas the other disciples are named. So that consistency would say, with the writer, not specifically naming himself, that this unnamed disciple would actually be John. Also here we have a very specific timeline of days here by the author, which would indicate that he has intimate knowledge of these specific seven days in the life of Christ. So for these two reasons, I believe the very first disciples to follow Jesus then were Andrew and John. And one final question I want to answer here at the outset is, who is Nathaniel? Who is Nathaniel? If, if you look at the list of the 12 closest disciples to Jesus, he calls the 12 apostles. He does this in Matthew 10, in Mark 3, and in Luke 6. And you read that list of 12 names, Nathaniel isn't in that list. So who is Nathaniel? Well, in our text this morning, Philip goes and gets Nathaniel and brings him to Jesus. And in the other two, in the lists that we have, Philip and Bartholomew are listed together in the other gospel. So the consensus is that Nathaniel in our text this morning is Bartholomew in the synoptic gospels, and his name was most likely Nathaniel Bartholomew, or Nathaniel, son of Ptolemy. So Nathaniel is Bartholomew, so we have that connection with the other Gospels. Now with some preliminary questions answered, the text itself is actually fairly straightforward. The ministry of John the Baptist had one purpose, to prepare the people for the coming Messiah and to send people to him when he came. That was the entire reason and the entire purpose of John the Baptist's life. Right in our narrative in verse 35, right, right away, we see a beginning of the fulfillment of that purpose. John the Baptist points out Jesus to his disciples, and two of them, John and Andrew, immediately leave John the Baptist, and they go to follow Jesus. They go to where Jesus is, and they spend the rest of the day with him from the 10th hour, which, by the way, by the way that they did time, that would have been 4 p.m. So from 4 p.m. for the rest of the day, Andrew and John are spending time with Jesus. And we don't read what exactly that evening looked like, but we can imagine. We can imagine as they talked with Jesus, as they asked him questions, I would imagine, late into the night. And whatever their interaction was, the next day, Andrew immediately goes to find his brother Simon and brings him to Jesus. The next day after that, they go into Galilee where Jesus calls Philip and Philip finds Nathanael and brings Nathanael to Jesus. And Jesus gives Nathanael and all the disciples a small display of his glory and we see Nathanael's response of faith. And on the surface, that is all that happens in our text. And that leaves the question of what we're going to do with this narrative. How, How are we going to approach it? And to be honest, there are so many different aspects of this text in which we could focus, and that is often the challenge of any preacher. So to help us, I want to explain the approach we're going to take for the rest of this morning, why we're taking that approach. 
John's purpose in writing this gospel was to give evidence that Jesus is God and that believing in him we might have eternal life. And he does that very strategically. He, he does that through specific miracles that he relates in discourses of Jesus that point to specific aspects of his deity in order that people through this gospel we get a full picture of who Jesus is and that believing in Jesus they might be saved. So that's the question I want to focus the rest of our time. What does this text show us about the character and nature of Jesus? And secondarily, what does that mean for our lives? Or to put it another way, how should we respond to the aspect of Jesus that we see in this text? Well, for this morning, we're going to focus on verse 41. And we're going to allow that to be the filter by which we examine our narrative. After John and Andrew spend the evening with Jesus, Andrew goes... And he finds his brother Simon and he says to him in verse 41, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. So after spending the night with Jesus, that is the conclusion that Andrew comes to. Jesus is the Messiah. So that is what we want to focus on this morning. Jesus, the Messiah. And that leads to an important question that we're going to spend the rest of our time with this morning. What does it mean? What does it mean that Jesus is the Messiah? Well, the term Messiah literally means anointed one. Now, when John writes this account, notice he gives an explanation for the term immediately. He follows up Messiah saying that Messiah means Christ. Now, that most likely isn't all that helpful for us this morning as an explanation. But it would have been for some of his readers who would have read this account. Messiah is the Hebrew term. Christ is the Greek term. So that explanation was for his Greek readers so they would know what he meant. So either way, Messiah or Christ, they both mean the same thing and they mean anointed one. So what did John, what what then did John's original Jewish audience, those who would have been reading this, what would they have thought of when they read this term and they saw this term Messiah? This is important because it places for us, helps us place us in the mindset of the people who would have originally read this account. For the Jews of Jesus' day, they would have gotten their concept of Messiah from the scripture they had, which is for us today the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, the concept of Messiah is expressed in the hope that there was going to come a day when a descendant of David would ascend to the throne of Israel, bringing salvation to his people. A time that was regarded by them as the beginning of the the end, as the end time. And that is the event in redemptive history that they saw coming next. The one that God had anointed, the anointed one, to become king, which in their minds, anointing would have primarily been associated with kingship. So, so the one that God had anointed to become king would come and would rescue his people, ushering in an eternal salvation for his people and judgment for the rest of the nations. Now there are many examples, many of examples of this throughout scripture, so we're going to just look at a few of them so we can see this concept as they would have understood it from the Old Testament. And it begins in 2 Samuel 7, verses 11 through 16. 2 Samuel 7, verses 11 through 16. And in these verses, God is making a promise to King David through the prophet Nathan. This is the the Davidic covenant. This is the promise that God is making to David. And he says, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, talking about Solomon, his son, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. He built the temple. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So we get an initial indication of an eternal throne. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I'll discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And in verse 16, he says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. 
So in in verse 16, God promises David this throne, this kingdom would be established forever. That this kingdom would be made sure forever. The Jews understood what this meant. And just as we do today, that, that this was a promise of a coming anointed king from the line of David that would establish an eternal kingdom with an eternal reign. And God continues to give his people this hope throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And we see it throughout the Old Testament. We even see it clearly in the prophets. Now the prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, just to see this, which rightly we like to quote this at Christmas time. 6 through 7, Isaiah 9 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So in there we see the same components as we saw in the original promise that God made to David. God was going to send an anointed king from the line of David who would establish an eternal throne, an eternal kingdom. And Isaiah paints a picture of what this kingdom will look like in Isaiah chapter 11. We don't have time to read that entire chapter this morning, but no, right, this description of this rule, this kingdom that the anointed one would establish, this, the rule this kingdom extends to the entire earth, it brings with it just judgment and peace. And once again, this is ushered in by Isaiah by whom Isaiah 11.1 describes as a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. This is another reference to this promised anointed one, a Messiah. And these are two examples or three examples, and there's multiple examples, many examples, all throughout the Old Testament of this promised anointed king of the line of David who would come. So when the Jewish readers would have read this and would have seen this title for Jesus as the Messiah they would have instantly understood what he was trying to communicate. That Jesus is the anointed king of the line of David who was promised to come bringing salvation for his people and to establish his kingdom. But, but as the authors of scripture often do, they take that concept that everyone would have understood in their culture and then they infuse it with deeper meaning. They take it and they broaden it and they flesh it out wonderfully and beautifully for us. So for us this morning, I want to see there are five descriptions this morning that flesh out for us our understanding of Jesus as the Messiah. That is what I want us to see this morning. I'm going to call these are five expressions of the glory of Christ as Messiah. Five expressions of the glory of Christ as Messiah. Number one, number one is Lamb of God. Number one is Lamb of God. And for references in verse 29 and in verse 36. Now this is a carryover from verses 19 through 37, but it is applicable to our discussion this morning. When John the Baptist declared that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he was expressing an aspect of Jesus as Messiah. Now we're not going to spend a lot of time here this morning, because we covered this in detail in the previous sermon, which covered that portion of John. If you weren't here that week, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. But what we understood from that title of Jesus is that Jesus is the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world, promised in the Old Testament sacrificial system, fulfilled in time and space in the physical coming of this God-man, Jesus Christ, who redeemed his people with his own blood securing for us an eternal redemption. Jesus' salvation, bought for us as the Lamb of God, is one aspect or fleshing out of Jesus as Messiah. This aspect, however, would have been hardest for the Jews of Jesus' day to comprehend. They did not see, to be clear, they didn't see two comings of the Messiah. They didn't see a first coming in which he would bring spiritual salvation and establish a spiritual kingdom. They only saw a coming in which he would set up a physical kingdom and bring physical redemption to his people. 
They didn't connect the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 with the promised and hoped for Messiah. They missed it. And we can see that elsewhere in the Gospels. This mindset of the disciples, which is representative of this nation as a whole, is made clear in Matthew chapter 16. And in Matthew chapter 16, we have this wonderful account. And immediately prior to the one I'm going to talk about, Peter declares that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. It's this glorious moment in which God the Father gives Peter the ability to clearly see and proclaim who Jesus is. And then immediately after that, Jesus follows this up, this proclamation up, and he starts telling his disciples, listen, I have to go to Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die, and three days later I'm going to rise from the dead. And this is beyond Peter's comprehension. He cannot conceive of a Messiah who would die. No, no, the Messiah was supposed to come and rule and reign. So this same Peter, who boldly proclaimed who Jesus was, then takes Jesus aside, the one he has proclaimed to be the Son of God, and he rebukes Jesus. He tells Jesus, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. They didn't get it. They didn't see that aspect of the Messiah's coming. They, they, they didn't get it until after Jesus' death and resurrection. We, however, can see. Jesus, as the Lamb of God, is the Messiah, the anointed one who, in our time of redemptive history, brings salvation for our souls through himself. Jesus, as the Lamb of God, is an expression of, of his glory as the Messiah. So that's first of all. Secondarily, secondarily, fulfillment of Old Testament prof- promises. Fulfillment of Old Testament promises. And we see this in verse 45. After, after Andrew and John spent an evening with Jesus, Andrew makes the declar- declaration to his brother Simon that Jesus is the Messiah. The day after Peter is brought to Jesus, they leave the area they're in and they go to Galilee. Jesus calls Philip to follow him. And then after Philip spends some time with Jesus, he goes and he finds Nathanael and he declares to Nathanael in verse 45, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Well, how did Philip come to this conclusion about Jesus. We don't have any of Philip's interaction with Jesus, but we can imagine what that must have been like. Actually, I think we have a picture of what this conversation must have been like because we have one that takes place after Jesus dies and rises from the dead. In Luke 24, there's a narrative of some disciples. This is after the crucifixion. They don't know that Jesus has risen. They're, they're on the road to Emmaus, They're walking on the road and they they come across Jesus and they don't recognize him and they're sad and discouraged. They're discussing his crucifixion. And they had lost hope because Jesus had died. And Luke writes in Luke 24, verses 25 through 27. And he, Jesus, Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That is the indication I think that we have here with Philip. As they're walking on the road in Galilee and as they're talking, Jesus must have explained to them how all the scripture beginning with Moses and all the prophets were fulfilled in himself. What a conversation that must have been. And by the end of it, Philip is convinced. He is convinced that Jesus is the promised Messiah, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of Moses and all the prophets. Now, we've already mentioned just a few examples of promises in the Old Testament that pointed forward to the coming Messiah. God also promised through Moses, just because he references Moses here, in in Deuteronomy 18, verse 18. 
God says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, like Moses from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So as Philip had walked and talked with Jesus, he comes to Nathanael and proclaims that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that Moses and the prophets promised about the coming Messiah. We need to understand this morning that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God promised in the Old Testament. I read an article from Dr. John Piper this week that was helpful. It was helpful in summarizing our understanding of Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And and Dr. Piper, he does this in a series of statements. I'm going to read them. I take no credit for them, just to be clear, but I found them to be helpful at least in summary, to help us understand the implications of Jesus as a fulfillment of Scripture. First, he said, all the Scriptures, all the Scriptures bear witness to Christ. All the Scriptures bear witness to Christ. Number two, all the Scriptures are about Jesus Christ even where there is no explicit prediction. That is, just understand, there is a fullness of implication in all the Scriptures that points to Christ and is satisfied only when He comes and has done His work. Not only that, Jesus actually came and He says He came to fulfill all that was written in the law And the prophets, all of it, all of it was pointing to him, even where it is not explicitly prophetic. He accomplished what the law required. He accomplished what the law required. Fourthly, all the promises of God in the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That is, when you have Christ, sooner or later you'll have both Christ himself and all else that God promised through Christ. And then lastly, the law was kept perfectly by Christ. The law was kept perfectly by Christ. All its penalties against God's sinful people were poured out on Christ. Therefore, the law is now manifestly not the path to righteousness. Christ is the ultimate goal of the law is that we would look to Christ, not law keeping for our righteousness. And there's a lot, right? We've just, we've kind of done big picture, fly by, a lot wrapped up in this idea of Jesus as a fulfillment of the Old Testament. All the Old Testament, if we think, okay, what am I going to take away from this? All that was said, all the Old Testament pointed forward to the Messiah. And so now as we read the Old Testament, we have the benefit of being able to see all that they could not fully under- see, all they could not fully see and all they could not fully understand at the time. It finds its fulfillment in Christ. And whether he fully understood, which I'm sure he didn't, fully understood what he was saying, that is what Philip goes and he tells Nathaniel. Jesus, as the fulfillment of Old Testament promises, is an expression of his glory as the Messiah. So we've seen Jesus, the Lamb of God. We've seen Jesus' fulfillment of Old Testament promises. And now, thirdly, we come to the Son of God. Son of God. Well, when Philip tells Nathaniel that we found him, we found him that all the Old Testament was talking about. We found him. What is Nathaniel's response? Well, actually, it's one of prejudice. He actually, he hears that Jesus is from Nazareth and he can't believe his ears. Nathaniel himself is from the village of Cana and as often happens among small towns or villages, there's a rivalry. But it seems that this rivalry goes much deeper than just fun rivalry between towns. Nazareth actually had a reputation and, and those, all those that looked around them actually looked down on Nazareth. You can actually, I feel you can hear the disdain dripping from Nathaniel's lips as he cannot conceive of any. Is there anything good that can come out of Nazareth? Anything? Yet, Philip simply responds to him, come and see. Come and see. So Nathaniel comes to Jesus with Philip. And before he even has a chance to say anything, 
Jesus makes a proclamation to them. He looks at Nathanael and he says in verse 47, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Amazingly, Jesus looks at Nathanael and he makes a proclamation about his character. Now there's some debate about what exactly Jesus means when he calls Nathanael an Israelite indeed who has no deceit. Is he referring to Nathanael's genuine faith by pointing out he's an honest man who doesn't take advantage of other people? Or is Jesus pointing out what Nathanael's previous statement demonstrated that with Nathanael there's no hypocrisy. What you see is what you get. Even if what you get is prejudice, what you see is what you get. Well, to be honest, either way, I don't think it ultimately matters. And I don't think it matters because there's an obvious overarching point, no matter what Jesus meant, Jesus is clearly telling Nathaniel, I know what is going on inside of you. He knows the condition of Nathaniel's heart. He knows everything that is going on inside of this man. We see that must have struck a nerve, you can imagine. That must have struck a nerve with Nathaniel. He actually doesn't dispute what Jesus says. He responds and he says, how do you know me? The word know here is more than just head knowledge. This is experiential knowledge. Nathaniel is asking Jesus how he could possibly know what was going on inside his own heart. And Jesus then demonstrates that Nathaniel that he knows what's going on inside because he also knows what's going on outside. He tells Nathaniel, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Jesus is telling Nathanael he knows what is going on inside and outside of him. He knows, in other words, he knows everything. Everything. This right here is a demonstration of Jesus' omniscience. There is nothing actual or future that Jesus as God does not know. And in this statement, this shocking statement, he would have made that clear to Nathaniel and to all the disciples who were around listening to him. And Nathaniel, understandably, is shocked by this. He comes to Jesus with prejudice about where Jesus came from. He comes doubting what Philip had just told him. And then Jesus rocks his world by giving him and all the other disciples a glimpse into his glory by saying, not only do I know who you are, Nathaniel, I know everything about you, past present, and future. And what's the first thing that Nathanael says in response to that? Nathanael responds by first calling Jesus, you are the son of God. What is meant by that term then? Son of God. In response to a display of the deity of Christ, Nathanael says, you are the son of God. Well, that term Son of God is meant as an equality. It doesn't mean something less than like we think of a child to a father, but actually something equal to. What is communicated in this one small term is the ontological oneness of Jesus with the Father. Well, what does that mean? Ontology. That's the same essence, the same nature, the same being. In other words, whatever makes God the Father God makes God the Son, God. So when Jesus is called the Son of God, that's an equaling to Jesus is God. And Jesus actually clearly lays out his relationship to the Father in John 5. And he makes it clear in John 5 how, he's the, how he is God, how he is one with the Father. He, he, he talks about he has the same authority and power as the Father. He says the works that he does are the Father's works. The things that he says are what the Father wants him to say. And he sets himself up not as some separate God, but as one with the only God. And to be clear, the Jews understood exactly what he was saying. There was no confusion amongst the Jewish religious leaders. Jesus actually later on, he makes it really, really clear. He says in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. We get a little glimpse of it here and he makes it really clear later. I and the Father are one. 
And in John 5, 18, it says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Why did they want to kill him? Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is ultimately their basis for killing him. They accused him of blasphemy as he affirms that he is the son of God. They understood. They understood that Jesus was making himself equal with God and they killed him for it. And that's what that term means, son of God. Now the Jews of Jesus' day, they didn't see the coming Messiah as God himself, God come in the flesh to bring salvation through his death. They is they only saw an anointed king that God would send, not the Son of God. We, however, we know this truth about Jesus. Jesus as the Messiah, as the promised anointed one, is the Son of God. Anything less than Jesus is God and we are a people without hope. Anything less than Jesus as the Son of God, and he could not have brought salvation. Anything less than Jesus as the Son of God, and we would still be lost in our sin without hope and destined for an eternity of condemnation. The only way the Messiah brings salvation is because he is the Son of God, standing in our place as the perfect Lamb of God. Jesus as the Son of God, is an expression of his glory as the Messiah. So fourthly, fourthly, not just the Lamb of God, the fulfillment of Old Testament promises, and the Son of God, he's also called the King of Israel. And we see that also in verse 49. The King of Israel. Nathanael not only proclaims Jesus as the Son of God, But in the rest of verse 49, he says that Jesus is the king of Israel. And clearly, this is an expression of an outflow of the messianic expectation at the time of Christ. And we covered that in detail earlier. When Nathanael saw a glimpse of the glory of Jesus in his omniscience, something that can only be attributed to God, he declares Jesus is God and Jesus is king. Here before him, in his mind, was the fulfillment of all their messianic hopes and dreams. And with kingship comes this idea of authority. And Jesus even gives us a glimpse of his his authority within these verses. When Andrew first brings his brother Simon to Jesus in verse 42, we have this interesting interaction. Jesus looks at Simon and says to him, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. If you can imagine with me, like there's lots of shocking interactions here. And this is another one. You can imagine me, this one is shocking to Simon. There's no indication in the text that they had even been introduced verbally. And Jesus first shows, one, that he knows who Simon is. But then he tells Simon that he shall be called Cephas, who we most, the term we most commonly know as Peter. On here. Well, one thing that's going on clearly is this is an expression of Jesus' authority. He looks at this man and he gives him a new name. Now what immediately comes to my mind is Adam in the garden. God creates all the living creatures and he brings them before Adam and Adam names them. And one of the reasons for this, not all, but one of the reasons is it's an expression of dominion or authority. This is just like when a new baby is born. The parents, the ones who have authority over this child, name them. The child has no say in what they are named. This is an expression of a parent's authority. And that is what Jesus is expressing here. He has unparalleled authority as the king to name people what he wants to. It's just a glimpse as his authority. And so when when Nathaniel calls Jesus the king of Israel. We know that Jesus is the anointed king with authority from the line of David. He is the fulfillment of the promise that God made to David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Once again, however, they didn't fully understand what that meant in his first coming. They only saw a Messiah in which he would establish his physical kingdom. They didn't understand the plan of God in which there would be a first coming 
followed by this age we now live in, this church age in which we find ourselves where we are actually waiting for the complete fulfillment of all the promises, all the ones that are left that have not been fulfilled in his second coming. They didn't see the establishment of a spiritual kingdom in which Jesus rules and reigns over those he has brought into his kingdom with his own blood. We, however, we, however, know this to be true. Paul, Paul makes this clear. Paul says in Colossians 1.13. In Colossians 1.13, he says, He, Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul wrote in Philippians 3, 20 and 21, he says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. All believers here this morning are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Jesus Christ, who is the anointed king. And we know that when Jesus returns in his second coming, he will not come as a suffering servant, but as the conquering king. And in Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16, we have a picture. We have this picture of Jesus' second returning and establishing the physical kingdom here on earth. Let's just listen to this following description of his second coming as he fulfills all that's left to fulfill in scripture. He says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And on the And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword in which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus the Messiah is the king. In his first coming, he came as the suffering servant, establishing a spiritual kingdom in which every believer is a kingdom citizen, anxiously awaiting the return of our conquering king. And when he does return, we are told in Philippians 2, 9, and 10, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, one day everyone will acknowledge the fact that Jesus, the Messiah, is King. Jesus as the king is an expression of his glory as the Messiah. Jesus as the king is an expression of his glory as the Messiah. So we've looked at four expressions of his glory as Messiah so far. The last one, number five, is son of man. Number five is son of man. Jesus responds to Nathaniel's proclamation by telling him two things. First, That even though Nathanael made this exclamation or this proclamation about Jesus as in a response to his omniscience, he tells Nathanael he would see greater things than these. What did Jesus mean by that? Well, I think we can take it at face value. At at this point, Nathanael had only been introduced to Jesus. There are three years of public ministry ahead of him where Nathanael and all the disciples are going to see and experience evidence upon evidence upon evidence that Jesus is the Messiah in the fullness of what that term means. The gospel writer actually spends the rest of this gospel giving evidence to Jesus as this Messiah. However, Jesus follows this statement with an allusion to a narrative from the Old Testament. He says in verse 51, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of man. 
Now, these disciples would have understood the allusion here. It actually refers back to an incident in Genesis chapter 28. To so just give a quick overview, in Genesis 28, Jacob cheated his brother out of his blessing. He cheated Esau. Jacob's fearing for his life, and he flees, and he runs away. He's scared. He's on the run. And God comes to him in a dream in Genesis 28, verses 10 through 17. And in this dream, Jacob sees a staircase from earth to heaven. And it says angels are ascending and descending on it. And at the top of the staircase is God. And God then establishes the promise, the covenant that he made with Abraham. He establishes it with Jacob. He says, I'm going to fulfill this in you. He reassures Jacob that with this vision that God is with him and that he will fulfill what he has promised to do. And in the same way, Jesus is telling his disciples that they will see greater things than these. As if the heavens are opened up and they see angels ascending and descending upon him. In other words, it will be overwhelming evidence from heaven itself that Jesus is the Messiah. And in making this statement, Jesus adds the additional title to himself that helps us further understand Jesus as the Messiah. He calls himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man. This is a title used in the New Testament, to be clear, exclusively for Jesus. It's not used for anybody else. And the vast majority of the time, he's the one who calls himself this. He most often is the one who refers to himself as the Son of Man. So what did Jesus mean? What did he mean when he calls himself the Son of Man? Well, first of all, in one sense, in one sense it refers to his humanity. Yes, Jesus is the Son of God. He is God, but he's also the Son of Man. We, we understand that Jesus is truly God and truly man, and that he must be so to be the perfect substitute for our sins. But that is not all that it means. It's also tied to the figure of the Son of Man in Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, here's what we read. Here's what the Daniel sees. He sees his vision, and he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, so we're going to see these same messianic themes that we've been talking about this whole time, and to him, to this Son of Man, was given dominion, and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, all languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting, eternal dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is connecting himself with the Son of Man who is given universal authority by the Ancient of Days. And he takes that title, however, and he broadens it for us. And he's actually going to connect the Son of Man authority with the suffering servant in Isaiah. And John actually does that for us very briefly. This expression, Son of Man, just occurs 13 times in John's gospel. And most commonly, it's associated with three things. John purposely, and Jesus purposely, associates this title, Son of Man, with three themes in his gospel. The first is crucifixion crucifixion. Jesus says about himself in John 3:14, and as Moses lifted up the servant, the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. That's one example. So Jesus connects this title of son of man with death. He also connects this title of son of man with revelation. Not just with crucifixion, but with revelation. In John 6:27, he says, "Do not work for the food that perishes, but the food that, he do, that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. So the Son of Man is connected with crucifixion, with revelation, and lastly with authority, which we see even in Daniel. But Jesus says in John 5.27, he says, And he has given him authority, the Son of Man authority, to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And D.A. Carson, in writing about this title, Jesus gives himself, says this, John fuses these themes so that the climactic glorification of the Son of Man is achieved through his cross, resurrection, and exaltation. 
It is the combination of associated themes that is characteristic of Jesus' use of the title. John's gospel makes it clear that for Jesus, there cannot be glory without obedience. No glorification without the cross. Above all else, it is Jesus' death and exaltation that provides for Nathaniel and the other disciples, as for countless followers of Jesus since them, the most powerful fulfillment of the promise of this verse. They thought that the Messiah would come and establish his kingdom through power. John makes it clear in this gospel that Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of Man, first came into a world to into this world to establish his kingdom through his glorification by death, resurrection, and exaltation. Jesus, as the Son of Man, is an expression of his glory as the Messiah. Well, as we have seen this morning, there's so much truth packed into the statement that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus, as the Messiah, is the perfect Lamb of God, slain for our sins before the foundation of the world. Jesus, as the Messiah, is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. All of Scripture points to and is fulfilled in Him. Jesus, as the Messiah, is the Son of God. Jesus is God and must be God in order to be the perfect Lamb of God. Jesus, as the Messiah, is King. He has come and established a spiritual kingdom in which every believer here this morning is a citizen. He bought our citizenship with his own blood as the Son of God and the perfect Lamb. And Jesus, as the Messiah, is the Son of Man. He has, the, he has authority, and that authority and that power is establishing his kingdom. It has been established through death, resurrection, and exaltation. And he will come again one day when he will establish his physical kingdom here on earth as the Son of Man. This is the glory of the God we serve. Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. Well, how do we respond? How do we respond to Jesus, the Messiah? Well, there are two responses I see in our text this morning. So I'm pulling these out of the text. The first response is come and see. Come and see. There are two times in this narrative where people are encouraged to come and see Christ. When Jesus is first asked where he is staying by John and Andrew, he tells them, come and see. He invites them into a relationship with himself. When Philip goes to Nathaniel and Nathaniel expresses his prejudice and skepticism about Jesus, Philip tells him to come and see. And that is then our first response this morning, come and see. If you are here this morning and you don't know Jesus, I invite you to come and see You have been confronted with the glory of Jesus as the Messiah. Contained in that is the truth that Jesus as the Messiah came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus as Messiah came as our Savior through his life, death, and resurrection. Every person is born into this world a sinner. We do not and we cannot know God and as, are we, and as we are presented with the truth of God, we are then confronted with our own sin. We can't atone for our own sin. Only the perfect Messiah can do that for us. And he did. His name is Jesus Christ. And the only way you can receive forgiveness of sin is if you confess your sin, you call out for forgiveness, you turn and you place your trust in him alone to save you as the Messiah. If you have not done that this morning, I plead with you. I plead with you to do so. You have seen Christ this morning in scripture. Don't see Christ and walk away unchanged. Come and see. Repent and trust in him alone for he alone can save you. Come and see. Now this is clear for the unbeliever this morning but there's also truth here for the believer. For every believer here this morning when you come to the scriptures, when you read the words of God, What are you seeking? What are you looking for? If Jesus, our Messiah, is the point of this book, then when we come to this text, are we seeking him? I think it is too easy for us to learn about Jesus as part of becoming a Christian and then move on. We learn about Christ, we learn about the cross, crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, ascension. And then we think, yeah, we've got it. 
We think we've arrived. Oh, yeah, I know Jesus. I know Jesus. We think there isn't anything more for us to learn about Jesus after we are saved. And that's just not true. The whole point of scripture is Christ. It is Jesus. Everything in this book is an outworking of God's plan of redemption, which is fulfilled in him. All the Old Testament pointed forward to him. The Gospels tell us of his first coming, and we are now in this period of time in which we're eagerly awaiting his return. We are waiting for him to come back. He is going to be, he is the culmination of history, and we have all that God wants us to know about Christ in the pages of this book. So when we come to the Bible, when we read scripture, what are we seeking? Don't stop seeking after Christ as a believer. Salvation is just the beginning. Salvation is just the tip of the iceberg. Salvation brought us into right relationship with God, and then we should spend the rest of our lives in this book learning more about our Messiah. We could spend our entire lives plumbing the depths of Scripture, learning what it has to say about Christ, and never, to be clear, never get to the end. Never reach a point where we no longer have something to learn. When we have Jesus all figured out. Oh no, what an arrogant thing to think. I don't think that most of us consciously think that in our minds. But we say that with how we handle this book. And how we live our lives. So to every believer here this morning, I say the same thing as I do to every unbeliever. Come and see Come and see your Messiah. Come and see the anointed King, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the fulfillment of all that Scripture promises. Spend your life coming and seeing the one who has rescued you and brought you into his kingdom as a son and co-heir with Christ. Come and see. And secondarily, secondarily, Not just come and see, but go and tell. Go and tell. The second response we see from the text this morning to the glory of Jesus and Messiah is to go and tell. The immediate response of the disciples to coming and seeing Jesus was to go and tell others. Andrew immediately goes to his brother. Philip goes to Nathaniel. They go and they tell, and we should too. I I like Andrew in Scripture. You know, it's interesting that in this gospel, which I think every time that he shows up in this gospel, which is the last of the gospel accounts written, he is always introduced as Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Well, why do you think that is? <laughs> well, if you had Peter for your brother, you would probably understand. His brother was the leader. He was the outspoken one. He was the one that everybody knew. Andrew continually lived in the shadow of his brother, so much so that when he's introduced in John's gospel account, John has to make sure everybody knows who he's talking about. He says, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. I jokingly tell people that after I had kids, I no longer was known as Darren. I forever became, oh, you're Aiden's dad or you're Asher's dad. That's the general idea here. But even though that is the case, we can see, though, through John's gospel, Andrew doesn't seem, at least we don't have any indication that he resents this fact. You know what we actually see consistently in John's gospel with Andrew? We see a man who consistently brings people to Christ. In our text this morning, he goes and he tells his brother about the Messiah and he brings Peter to Jesus. In John 6, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus challenges his disciples, figure out how we're going to feed them. They don't know what to do. And we know the story of the boy with the five loaves and two fish. Well, who brought that boy to Jesus? It was Andrew. Andrew brought him to Jesus. And then in John chapter 12, there are some Greeks who want to see Jesus. They want to meet him and talk to them. And they go and they tell Philip they want to see Jesus. But who does Philip go? Who does Philip talk to to say, hey, is it okay for these Greeks to come and talk to Christ? He goes to Andrew. Time and again, we see in Andrew the heart of a man who just wanted to bring people to Jesus, his Messiah. It is such the case that Philip goes to him 
about people who want to see Jesus. And that is very telling about this man's character. So as we come to a close this morning, I want to encourage and challenge you to go and to tell someone about your Messiah. Go and call someone to come and see the glory of this man. Let us all have the heart of Andrew who was so overwhelmed by Jesus, the Messiah, that he had to bring people to him. That that he was known as the one who brought people to Jesus. Let us be known for that. So come and see and go and tell. So I want to give you a challenge as you leave this morning, as you meditate on the glory of Jesus, the Messiah, I want you to think of one person in your life that is not a Christian. One person. My guess is that as soon as I said that, one particular person came to your mind. And I'm going to challenge you with the goal. It's okay to set spiritual goals. It's challenge you with the goal of sharing the gospel with that person this year to call this one person to come and to see Jesus, the Messiah, this year. The people in your life are not there by an accident. God has placed those specific people in your life for a purpose and for a reason. And one of those reasons, one of those reasons so you can look at them, you can say, come and see the glory of the Messiah, Jesus. Come and see My prayer is that we would be a community of Andrews, those who must go out into the communities that God has placed us in to bring people to come and see, to taste and see the glory of Jesus, the Messiah. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you.